Take your Bibles and we'll go to Matthew chapter 1 this morning. Matthew chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 17 together. Thank you to our musicians for guiding us in worship this morning. And even more so, thank you to you, the congregation. Our voices are the main instrument. God delights to hear as we speak to one another the truths of God's word and as we praise him. Matthew chapter 1. We'll be reading through verse 17 in just a few moments. It's been noted that in the United States, the business of genealogy research has become a multi-million dollar industry. There's even places I saw it said it was a billion dollar industry. Some reports stated a few years ago that genealogy research, finding your ancestry, ancestry was the second most popular hobby in the United States. Now, I'm not sure if you have pursued this hobby yourself, but we can understand why people find it interesting to seek out their ancestry. People want to find out if there's anyone famous in their background. They want to find out who they are, where they're from. I know I've heard more than one person that has said they've traced their roots back to a famous president or some other figure in history. But what if you were doing one of those searches through your ancestry, you found out that it was filled with not great people? What if your ancestry was filled with people who were criminals, murderers, adulterers, outcasts of society? Now, how likely would it be that you would share that history with anybody else? You know, we're happy to say, yeah, I can see a connection I have to George Washington, but I don't think we'd really pronounce out loud, yeah, I'm connected to that famous criminal. We tend to hide embarrassing details of our family history, don't we? Who would want to highlight that they come from a long line of morally deviant people? While our own family histories might be of some interest to us, the genealogies of Scripture are often considered irrelevant and unimportant. Now, we wouldn't say that out loud, but even by our own reading, oftentimes it's easy to skip through those sections, isn't it? It's likely that even when you found out that this was our text this morning, you were wondering, now, what are we going to be doing with this, this genealogy? How could you have an entire sermon on these verses? Or very often, these are the sections we skip right over. But the question we're to ask ourselves is, why would the Holy Spirit decide to begin the entire New Testament in this way? Consider this. Matthew's gospel was the most widely used Christian gospel in the first two centuries, according to New Testament scholars. And even though it was not the first gospel written chronologically, it is intentionally placed at the very beginning of the New Testament, even in our modern translations. Ancient authors also certainly knew that it was important to put the most interesting things at the beginning. They weren't dumb writers. They they knew to grab attention. And yet Matthew places this here first. And he's being very intentional at the beginning of His gospel. Now we're going to read these first 17 verses in just a moment. But as we read, I want you to take careful note of who Matthew is including. This will help direct us 
toward his purpose for the beginning his gospel in this way. To begin to reveal to us the value of including this seemingly unimportant, uninspiring list of ancestors. So as we read, ask yourself, are there people included in this list that are out of the ordinary or that break with a normal pattern? What do I know perhaps about the person that is listed here in this list? Let's begin reading now in verse one. This is the word of God to us as people. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This stands as the heading. Verse two, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac the father of Jacob and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's ask for God's help now as we consider this passage. Father, we ask for your grace as we look at this text. We ask for you to stir up our interest in what it is that you're revealing here. We ask for the illumination of your spirit to open our eyes to behold wondrous things of your law from your word about our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to know that you intended this for our encouragement for our edification, for our good. And may we therefore then respond to it with humility and with obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we ask ourselves, why would Matthew begin this most important gospel account with a genealogy? What is his purpose? Well, first, Matthew is seeking to establish who Jesus is, and what he came to do. That's what the Gospels are. They're records of who this person, Jesus, is, and we're introduced to him by being told something about his line. 
but he's telling us also what he came to do to convince his Jewish audience that he truly is that promised Messiah. Jesus meets all the qualifications. He's the one for whom they'd been waiting. Secondly, the Jews took their genealogy very seriously for several reasons, for for good reasons. Think back to the book of Joshua. An Israelite's lineage was the way by which they were given land. And every 50 years, all that land that had been sold would even go back to the original family owners. Land was vital for establishing your livelihood, for establishing your posterity and your line. It was vital to know your genealogy for these economic reasons. It was also important to know your genealogy for religious reasons. Only those of one tribe could serve as priests to God, and they diligently kept records so that only the right men who were worthy according to the law could serve. Even in Jesus' day, even after the exile, when a lot of records were lost, they took pains to know of whose tribe they were in. Think of the Apostle Paul, who was of the tribe of Benjamin, for instance. Remember as well, there were several Herods in the time of Jesus, and the one on the throne at his birth was half Edomite and half Jew. Now, this infuriated the Jewish community, right? We knew, we know from reading the uh, narratives here around Jesus' birth that, that the city is in an uproar. They don't like Herod. This is perhaps the main reason. The Old Testament law clearly stated only a full Jew could sit on the throne of Israel. He had no right to call himself the king, according to the Old Testament. And because lineage was so important to the Jews, Herod even tried to burn his family records in order to hide his mixed ancestry. Third, this genealogy is arranged in order to serve as a memory device for these new Jewish Christians. That's why it's set up in three groups of 14. This isn't meant to be a scientific record categorizing every single person in the line. We know if we look carefully through the Old Testament, there are several kings that are skipped. And the span that it's covering can't be 14 generations three times over. They're not to be intended as an exact account, but a simple and memorable way of underscoring Jesus' royal line. It's intended to be representative of his royal heritage. To record it in this way is meant to provide a way for Jewish converts to demonstrate and argue that Jesus is the Messiah. It's an apologetic for those who doubt who he is. So we can see in this genealogy, Matthew is laying out very clearly what kind of king that Jesus would be. By including the kinds of people that he does, he's showing that Jesus is not intending to restore Israel to some place of political prominence on the international scene. That's not his goal. And if an Old Testament Jew had been reading the Bible that way, this was to dispel all of that. He's come to save his people from their sins. That's made abundantly clear here in this list of names. Our text this morning teaches us that in Jesus, God fulfills his promise to provide a savior for sinful people. We'll consider the identity of Jesus from the framework of the first verse. 
we find four identity markers in this verse. We'll look at those in just a minute. Verse number one begins the book of the genealogy and can be more literally translated as the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. A careful reader of the Old Testament will notice that this is an intentional echo of what we see in Genesis. This idea, this beginning, the Genesis of something is repeated 15 times in that first book of the Old Testament. For instance, Genesis 2-4 reads, These are the generations, or the book, the record of the genealogy of the heavens and the earth, when they were created in the day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Genesis 5-1 says, This is the book of the generations, or genealogy, of Adam. So why the echo? Do you think that's an accident? Or is Matthew trying to proclaim even in this arrangement, even in that heading, that Jesus is the second Adam. This is the beginning of that new creation. He's the fulfillment of what Adam could not do. Here in verse 1, we're introduced to the story of the new creation. He's the beginning. Jesus is the beginning of making all things new. First, we see Jesus the Savior. The first name we're given of this royal descendant is Jesus. In Hebrew, the name, as we know, is Joshua. In Greek, it's Jesus. Joshua means the Lord or Jehovah saves, or the Lord is salvation. So who has Jehovah saves come to rescue? Well, the genealogy reveals the type of people for whom Jesus came. Though he came from a long line of Jewish kings, this list includes some very overtly sinful people, doesn't it? About half the kings listed here were good kings of Israel, men of faith. The other half were truly wicked kings, men who rejected God and his word, who led Israel into wickedness. For instance, Ahaz worshipped the pagan gods of Assyria. He practiced human sacrifice. He murdered One of his own sons, he robbed the temple of God for political gain and defiled the Lord's altar. Rehoboam and Jeconiah's records are nearly as bad. The king Manasseh was even worse. 2 Kings 21, 9 through 18 reveal he did even more than the nations in wickedness against God. He was worse than pagan idolaters. He promoted idolatry and murdered innocent people. And just so we're clear as to our spiritual need, who is at the very center of our list? It's King David. And the way that the genealogy is recorded, it highlights his most egregious sins, doesn't it? And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. The greatest of Israel's kings still needed a savior that's the message jesus did not come to praise his forebears but to save them now while it's common to list the men in one's family tree it's extremely uncommon to list women especially these women did you notice that they're highlighted in the genealogy each of them are highlighted by the word by And we see there Matthew is intentionally inserting them into the discussion. This would not be normal. 
we'd more likely expect to see names like Sarah and Rebecca, Leah and Rachel. We may be especially expecting this since God miraculously opened the wombs of several of these women. But the women listed here are all foreigners. And their lives are associated with sexual sin. Tamar pretends to be a harlot to seduce her own father-in-law, Judah, in order to blackmail him into fulfilling his vows to her. It's one of the darkest chapters in all of the Old Testament. And yet God includes her in the line of the Messiah. Rahab was a professional prostitute. She's recorded in that hall of faith for acting on what she believed. But we only know her as Rahab the harlot. That's what she's known as. Ruth was a Moabite woman, and her story turns out better, but her people were the sworn enemy of the people of God, and it's very likely she was rescued out of idolatry. She became the husband of an Israelite who is disobeying God by fleeing Israel. And God includes her in the line of the Messiah. Bathsheba is an adulteress and is unnamed here. She's identified solely as the wife of the man she sinned against. Including these women listed in the most important genealogy in history, history declares that the Gentiles, outsiders, are not an afterthought in God's plan. They've been a part of his work of redemption and grace from the beginning. We'll see that in that title, the son of Abraham as well. Why would God include so many sordid and sinful people in the genealogy of the Messiah? He's not embarrassed by this list. He's not hiding it. He's not ashamed to be among sinners. He's making a point that God saves by grace alone. He knows who he's come to save. There's no one worthy of him. Even referring to the exile highlights Israel's national sins of idolatry and its consequences. There's no one righteous here. Not one. There's no one without need of this Savior who came. What we see in these opening verses to the Christian New Testament is a God who's faithful to his promises, willing to save unfaithful, immoral people. The Messiah, in our thinking, shouldn't have anything to do with these people. But he does. But he does. Can you see how God is highlighting his faithful and steadfast love to sinners even through these first words? This genealogy is incredible. In the wisdom and through the inspiration of the Spirit, Matthew is not hiding the embarrassing fact that Jesus' line includes flagrant sinners prostitutes, strangers to God's covenant people, murderers and idolaters. Jesus came for people like his ancestors. People like you and people like me. He will be called brother by those who turn to him in repentance and faith. Secondly, he's Christ the anointed. In verse 1, Matthew declares this to be the genealogy of Jesus Christ the Christ or Messiah. It's important to note that Matthew rarely uses these two names together in his gospel. 
He usually just speaks of Jesus. And here he is identifying that Jesus is the Christ, which means the anointed one, the Messiah. Israel anointed their prophets, their priests, and their kings. And Jesus is here to perfectly fulfill each of these roles for his people. Third, he's called the son of David. It's very important to note that Jesus was the son of David. It is the title most closely associated with the identity of the Messiah. Jewish lineage as the son of David was never refuted. They never refuted that Jesus was his son in his line. That was never argued. Part of it was probably because the record is here and in Luke. He's referred to as the son of David nine times in Matthew's gospel and most significantly in the story of the triumphal entry. Listen to what Matthew is doing connecting to the Old Testament, to God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. He says, when God is saying to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. There's a near fulfillment in Solomon and a farther fulfillment in Jesus. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. You see what God is promising to David through that line? The king, the one true king who will make all things right. Matthew's establishing the fact that Jesus is that true Messiah, the son of David. And this mighty ruler says to his people, come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the kind of king these sinful people, we sinful people need. Fourth, he'll be called the son of Abraham. Remember in Genesis 12, God promised to Abraham that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. God never intended to give his light to Israel and they keep it for themselves. Here in this record, we see God's fulfillment of that promise. Gentiles, those outside of God's covenant with Israel, are included in this list. And listen to what Paul concludes in Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Those identity markers are gone. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. What does this teach us? In the Old Testament, God made many promises to his people. And here in the opening verses of the New Testament, we see in black and white that God is faithful to fulfill his word. Your God is faithful. He will keep his promises to you. The promises being fulfilled in Jesus were made hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, thousands of years as we talk about Abraham. And though for centuries God's people wondered, when would God act? This record stands as proof that God sovereignly works through the lives of real people to accomplish his purposes. But this passage also teaches us 
that we have to be patient. God's timing is so often not our timing. We have to wait on him to accomplish his work in his way. Just think of Abraham, how he may have wondered, even believed that his own son would be that great blessing to the world, but instead that greater son would come 2,000 years later. And God says it was the fullness of time. One commentator notes, delays of promised mercies, though they exercise our patience, do not weaken God's promises. He's resolved to do all his will for his glory and our good. Consider how over time, through these three periods of this genealogy, these three sets of 14, it seemed more and more unlikely and improbable that God would or could fulfill these promises. I mean, he starts with Abraham and Sarah, this elderly couple beyond childbearing years. If you follow the national history of the genealogy, Israel is becoming more and more irrelevant on the international scene. They're becoming more obscure. And of the time this is written, they are now under the heel of the Roman emperor. While they had returned from the exile, the nation is in disarray and the house of David has been buried in obscurity. How could God fulfill his promises now? The current King Herod is a half Jew. And yet God often acts at the most improbable time, the most unexpected time, the most surprising moment in order to demonstrate his amazing power and wisdom. He's saying no one can do this. But me, who is like our God? There's no difficulty of circumstance that will ever hinder God's promises to his people. Matthew begins his gospel by recording Jesus' mission to save men from every tribe and nation. Do you see that? He's saved here. He's working for the good of people from many different nations, Gentiles, those outside of Israel. We see Jesus came for sinners, outsiders, and Gentiles, and the book then closes with that same emphasis. He commands his followers to go and make disciples of every nation, and as we consider the incarnation, as we think of Jesus entering into the suffering of others, of humanity, we're to recognize that he's called us to be a part of that same mission. This is uniquely a time that should grab our attention in the calendar year and remind us that we're a people on mission. We're to go and tell because he came to save us. It's fascinating to see how Matthew interrupts his pattern now in verse 16. Look down at verse 16 again. He writes, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now just think about it carefully. The rest of this list has followed the same pattern over and over and over again. So by the time we get to verse 16, we should see and recognize the pattern is interrupted. He's been saying, so-and-so was the father of so-and-so. He repeated this pattern with every single father-son pair until this moment. The Greek language here is specifying that Jesus is the biological son of Mary, but not of Joseph. The pronoun whom in verse 16 is both feminine and singular. 
It's preserving the teaching of the supernatural virgin birth that we'll see in the next passage. Joseph was Jesus' legal adoptive parent. He was his father, but he was not his biological father. Therefore, Jesus was the rightful legal heir to David's throne through Joseph, and yet he is the divine son of God through the miraculous conception by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how carefully Matthew records this? How accurately, how intricately God worked the details of the birth of his son? In these opening verses of the New Testament, Matthew has intended to present Jesus as the climax, the pinnacle of Israel's history and the true heir to David's throne. Can you see how Matthew is declaring right here at the beginning of the gospel, at the beginning of the New Testament, that Jesus is the center of all human history, not just for our calendars, but for the way we live. History revolves around this king. You and I are not the center of history. And we need that reminder regularly, don't we? Our generation is not the center of history, the focal point of what God is doing in the world. And we need that reminder, don't we? We're not now living in the most important historical moment. The United States of America is not the center of history. Billions of people have come and billions have gone. Empires have come and empires have gone. Countries, nations, kings, queens, presidents, dictators, rulers have all come and gone. And at the center of it all stands one person. Jesus the Christ. This is the bold claim of Matthew's genealogy. Can you see it? And if this Jesus is the king of all history, then we should conclude that he is to be the king of our lives. This is a call to allegiance. This is a call to obedience. This is a call to worship. When we realize his right to rule and submit then to his reign, it changes everything about the way that we live, doesn't it? Everything. I don't get to say how my life should go. I don't get to say when God brings hard things in my life that this is wrong. I shouldn't be saying, I know the right path for my future and I have a right to determine it. I have to say, what does King Jesus require of me? I will obey. Matthew's demonstrating that Jesus Christ is completely qualified to save his people from their sins. He is truly Emmanuel, God with us. Our passage is showing us That our faithful God pursues unworthy sinners by a sovereign grace. It demonstrates that every human needs a savior. Paul writes in Romans 5. You see at the right time when we were still powerless Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our God, who is faithful to his promises and mighty to save sinners, sent his son, Jehovah saves, into the world for that purpose. That's how we as Christians must view this season. We're to push away all the other things that crowd out that purpose. 
Jesus embraced being counted among sinners. He was called the friend of sinners. How many people recognize that this time of year, when they sing a carol, as Pastor Rick mentioned, as Rick mentioned, or even say the word Christmas, they are unwittingly identifying both their need of a Savior and of God's provision to meet that need. Do we realize that as Christians, when we say we're celebrating Christmas? If you're here this morning and have come to realize for the first time that you need a Savior, that Jesus is God's provision to save you from the consequences of your sinful choices, he's ready to receive you into his family, into his bloodline this morning. You will fit quite nicely with the rest of us who've recognized our need of a Savior. Through Jesus, our God delights to bring the greatest of sinners into his family. There's not one who has too many sins that he won't rescue. Now, how should believers respond to these truths? Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 2, 9 and following. He says, but we do see Jesus, who is made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, fitting them into his family, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Jesus is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. That's staggering, isn't it? Because we're just like the people on this list. We would never want to claim a list like this as our forebears. We'd never say it out loud. Jesus wrote it down for all eternity so that we would know who he is and why he came. He's brought you into his own family in spite of your sinfulness, your unworthiness, your unfaithfulness. So we're to be humbled by this amazing truth this Christmas season. We're to love others as he has loved you. If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We're to worship and adore him because of this great love. And we're to follow him in obedience because he truly is the king over all kings. Let's pray. Where are you not willing to bow your knee? What sins is the Spirit leading you to confess this morning? Let's take a moment of silence together as we respond and then I'll close in prayer as we transition to the Lord's table.